the Incremental to Exponential podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast series from Capita, where we explore how big companies can innovate to survive and grow. I'm Justine Green, and each time we'll be meeting a special business guest to hear their story and opinion on our theme. Also, we're joined by Vivek Wadwa and Ishmael Amla, authors of the new book From Incremental to Exponential, How Large Companies Can See the Future and Rethink Innovation. Vivek is a technology entrepreneur and academic based in Silicon Valley. Hello, Vivek. Hi there. And Ishmael is Capita's Chief Growth Officer. Hi, Ishmael. Hi, Justine. And our distinguished guest this time is John Lewis, CEO of Capita. Hello, John, and welcome. Thank you, Justine. I'm looking forward to it. Now, John, you've been leading the capital business in London for three years now, but previously I understand you've worked in different countries and sectors of business. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, I hail from the UK originally, but actually spent the majority of my career working in international markets, uh, in software, in mining, uh, power generation uh, and oil and gas, of course, and still do that through a, a non-executive position I have on the board of uh, Equinor, the Norwegian oil and gas company. So I'm, uh, I'm back in the UK, uh, having spent the bulk of my career overseas. And originally a boy from a small mining town in South Wales. That's right, actually. And it's where I call you from uh, today. I'm a product of social mobility. Um, I somehow managed to get myself to university and the career that followed that. But I, uh, I will never forget my roots and I find it quite grounding, actually. Uh, and it has been a large, there's been a huge influence on in how I've thought about um, how companies should be purpose-led and how companies should be responsible. And whereabouts exactly are you? A little mining town called Ammonford in deepest Carmarthenshire. Okay, John, well, let's kick off by focusing on your view of an organisation's purpose. How does purpose drive strategy? Well, I think there's an important interplay between the two, but I think we would argue quite strongly that purpose comes ahead of strategy. In the purpose, if you are a truly purpose-led company, becomes very much your North Star. It shapes all that you do, the markets you serve, how you serve them, the kinds of clients you engage with, those that you don't, with a view really to being fair to all of the stakeholders you represent. And not just your shareholders, but the communities in which you operate, of course, your suppliers, your colleagues uh, and others. And, you know, a purpose serves different things for different companies. But for us, it was fundamental to uniting the business when we set out on what was a very challenging transformation three years ago. And I think I'm on the public record as stating that in many ways I wished I'd thought of the concept, I embraced the concept of being purpose-led earlier on in my career because it has been a phenomenally effective vehicle in aligning culture and behaviours as we've gone through, as I said, what has been a very difficult transformation. Vivek and Ishmael, your thoughts? Yeah, from my view, it's all about values and ethics. It starts at the top and flows uh, downwards. If you look at some of the greatest companies, if you look at Microsoft, um, how did Microsoft transform itself to uh, an aging dinosaur, a company that people predicted would be out of business to being one of the hottest companies in the industry, respected company on top of the world, you know, almost uh, one and a half trillion dollar market value. It was because the CEO, Satya Nadella, focused on culture and values and purpose. And he reoriented the entire company based on those principles. That's what it takes. Yeah, for me, actually, it's a very personal story, actually. The reason I joined Capita was because of John describing how the strategy of the company was going to be focused around purpose. 
And I had a career doing great things for great companies, but never fully feeling that what I was doing with, was aligned with what I believed. Actually here, I think the way I see purpose is an alignment of an individual sort of inner belief uh, with the impact that a company can make on all the stakeholders, which is, you know, what John's rolled out in, uh, in the capital world. So how do you follow through on your purpose? So let's hear all your thoughts on this, John. Perhaps firstly, I should say a little bit about how we've embraced the concept of purpose and the kind of framework we've adopted. Um, you know, firstly, to Vivek's point, we have to be honest and fair with our customers and suppliers. We have to be a good citizen in how we operate. We have to be a responsive and responsible employer. And, and I deliberately don't talk about employees. I talk about colleagues because I think that in itself is more embraceive of a, in terms of being a purpose-led company. And lastly, of course, um, we have to think about the future generations and be sustainable in our outlook, all of which then ultimately results, we would argue, in a better return uh, for shareholders. So how do you make that real? Um, for me, it's about deeds. And deeds are very tangible acts that companies undertake to demonstrate they are truly authentic and real about being purpose-led. And we undertook several of these very early on in our transformation. I think the most powerful of which was a commitment very early on to put two employees, two colleagues, on the board of the company. We're the first British FTSE company to do that. Um, it's quite common amongst European companies. It's very rare. In fact, I'm not aware of any American company uh, that has done it. But we did it because we wanted to give our colleagues a voice at the top table as we evolved becoming a purpose-led responsible business and as we evolved our strategy. And it had probably more than any other act deed we undertook, probably did more to bring the organization with us on our transformation. Hey John, let me put you on the spot over here. What you're saying is, is makes a lot of sense, but we, you know, Britain is being hit by two tsunamis at the same time. You have the pandemic and then you have Brexit. How do you, you know, maintain your values when you have so much turmoil all around you? Well, actually, it makes it easier because you know what your guiding light is and it helps you make very difficult decisions. And, you know, so let's take the pandemic. Um, if you are a truly purpose-led business then in facing a pandemic, the first thing you have to be concerned about is the welfare and health of your colleagues. And that's absolutely what we did. We put in place far more stringent guidelines and symptoms analysis for COVID than many of our peer companies. And that resulted in a dramatically lower level of incident rate and sadly deaths from COVID than I suspect we would otherwise have experienced. So if, if, if it is your North Star, it's your North Star through good times and bad. And you know, one other example would be some feedback very early on in our embrace of purpose from our LGBTQT plus community in the company who questioned why we were selling software into Brunei, given their attitudes to, uh, to, to gay people, etc. in that community. And we overnight made a decision to stop selling our software into that market. Now, that's another very tangible example. Those are very tangible examples of what I mean by deeds. These are unquestionable demonstrations of your commitment to being purpose-led. Ishmael. Yeah, I'd say there's three things that we've also put in place to support this so it becomes more systemic and institutional. 
The first thing is the leadership, and the leadership has to create the link between purpose, as described by John there, and creating better outcomes for all our stakeholders, and the key strategic initiative that the leaders are driving through. Secondly, is a process which allows us to capture the data to measure whether what we said we were going to do, we're doing. And thirdly, which John just talked to, is the culture, the a culture, an environment which allows challenge, that allows us to do that. John, how do you know you're succeeding? How do you know this has paid off? I think because, well, it, it's very hard to quantify, Vivek. I mean, a, an element of this is qualitative. But I'm pretty sure we would not have risen to the challenge of continuing to serve our clients and our clients' customers through the pandemic had we not empowered our 60-odd thousand colleagues with our purpose of creating better outcomes. We enabled them to do what was right by, in many ways, giving them permission through being purpose-led to do what was right uh, for our clients. I think the other thing I would cite is we've unquestionably been able to attract stronger, more capable talent. Ishmael is an example of this. There are others because of our commitment to being purpose-led. I mean, we've attracted people out of the international tech sector, for example, sometimes on lower compensation because they've wanted to work for a company that has the right principles, is purpose-led, is responsible, and is meeting the requirements of all of its stakeholders. And increasingly as you would expect amongst millennials and younger, that's a very important criterion in which they decide who they wish to work for. John, what has your experience of guiding large multinational organisations through periods of change taught you? I think first and foremost, uh, you have to have a plan and that plan has to be in place really before you start. You may not have the plan completely finalised, but complex transformations, particularly where there are balance sheet issues, are never linear. Uh, There are always surprises and the greater the degree to which you can remove uncertainty ahead of landing and leading that transformation, the greater the probability of success. So I've developed a template. This is the fifth turnaround transformation I've done in my career. I've developed a template which distinguishes between strategic imperatives, which are longer term and ultimately where you want to position the business in the markets you serve, from what I call the immediate operational imperatives. Those are the things that you have to wrestle to the ground straight away, or you may never have the luxury of realizing the longer term strategic uh, imperatives. And I think getting the balance between that, getting the organization behind you, winning hearts and minds, and having gobs of resilience, uh, as Ishmael will testify, if you can bring all of that together, then you can make them work. And from a personal point of view, when it comes to motivation, what drives you to get up and lead every morning? Well, surely one of the most satisfying things in life is fixing things. You know, whether that's a broken drill or tool, a relationship um, or a FTSE company, fixing things is just so incredibly satisfying. And, you know, the more complex, the more challenging, the more demanding the fixing task, obviously the greater the level of satisfaction you derive from that. I mean, it outweighs, for me, any financial gain because ultimately it is, it, it is the sense of satisfaction you as a human being gain from perhaps achieving something that was rather, rather challenging. All right, well, thanks for the moment. And next we'll talk more about innovation and Capita's response to COVID. John, 
John and Ishmael, before we bring Vivek back in, this is one for you both. When it comes to examples of innovative ideas for running a business, Capita have appointed two employees as non-executive directors, as we've mentioned. Uh, tell us more about that and how has it been received by different stakeholders? We do, I think one has to start with asking the question why we did it. And we did it because we were going through a very difficult transformation. We wanted to bring then all 70,000 colleagues with us on that transformation. What better way to achieve that than giving them an opportunity to shape to shape it. But I think more broadly, I have benefited from the experience of being on European boards. Um, as I mentioned, I sit on the board of, of Equinor, uh, where there have been employees on the board for many years, as is the norm in the Scandinavian European model. And I was really struck uh, in those instances of just how substantial a contribution uh, employee directors made to board decisions. And that was in contrast to how some of the more traditional chairs and non-executive directors in the UK felt about putting employees on the board, where I think there was a, a throwback to the separation between management and the workers. Uh, in fact, I had to coach people to not talk about them as being worker directors, but colleague or employee directors. We took four years off the average age of our board members. We have a millennial on the board who's catalyzing conversations we just wouldn't be having if we didn't have an employee on the board. And I think most importantly, uh, employees on boards keep executive management honest. Uh, you, 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 if you're talking about the success or lack thereof of, uh, of a particular initiative, a particular policy, a particular program in the company, uh, they're going to be very upfront and candid with the rest of the board members as to whether that has been a success or not. So it breeds transparency and openness uh, that is not always present in all boards. Ishmael. Yeah, I think there's a couple of points. One is it, for the employees, it was a proof point that this talk about purpose-driven was, wasn't just talk. Companies who are innovative make decisions that are bold, they make decisions quickly, and they're always ready to invent something new. And this is actually an incredible example of that. This was something John stated very quickly after he came on board. It was bold. Everybody was like, are you sure about this? Yeah. Uh, it was quick. And it positioned in a place where... All of the previous boundaries we would have thought, which would have stopped between us and changing our cultures, were demolished overnight. So quite powerful. Uh, I guess we're learning to maximise the effect of it, but uh, a, a brilliant move, certainly. Vivek, are there any good examples of businesses being run in an innovative way that stand out for you? You know, I'm going to flip that question, Justin. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I did um, a paid speaking engagement for one of the for a very large financial services firm. And I was online with the analysts and the analysts said, look, we're in um, CEO meetings all the time and we hear all these stories from CEOs. How can we tell if the company is going to make it or not make it, whether we can believe them? You know, I said, look, uh, if you go to a meeting and the CEO starts uh, pounding his or her own chest and talking about how smart they are or talking about their R&D investments, their R&D departments or their products, write the company off. If you go to the company and they start talking about their people, talking about how they're working together, how they care about their customers, that's a company that is going to make it. Innovation isn't R&D departments. Innovation is all about people. You have to have people from all parts of the organization participating in innovative uh, efforts. You have to challenge them to rise above and to solve the problems of the, the company. You have to share with them what the problems of the company are. So if you have employees on the board, 
the word is going to get out what the you know what the problems of the company are and you challenge them to work together to solve these problems and to reinvent the company john looking at capita's response to covid such a huge transformation what were the priorities for you well first and foremost as we mentioned earlier the well-being and the health of our colleagues uh, but then secondarily once we'd addressed that ensuring business continuity for our clients and as challenging as covid was we very quickly flipped like so many companies from largely having people coming into offices to having people working from home and um at the peak of the pandemic you know we had about uh 51,000 of our 62,000 colleagues working from home empowered um by our purpose of creating better outcomes and uh that of itself was very satisfying because we were able to combine well-being ensuring their health together with ensuring that we met as a purpose-led company the requirements of another key stakeholder our clients and actually were applauded by many of those clients particularly in the financial services sector um for the continuity of service we were able to to deliver through that now covid created many other challenges many other learnings and i think it's clearly going to affect a fundamental and permanent change in in our business model we polled as so many companies have our staff repeatedly through the crisis and it's very clear uh, that we will not go back to the model of old our new norm is going to have many more people working from home not permanently we'll end up with a hybrid model innovation collaboration with clients amongst ourselves is going to continue to largely take place in their in our clients or our facilities but a lot of the back office functions a lot of the day to day i think will uh continue to be done uh through people working at home with higher productivity i hasten to add and with higher levels of customer satisfaction than we were having prior to the crisis which has been an unexpected bonus from this question for all of you now can the unending change and human resilience continue to go hand in hand it has to that's the only way uh where you know humanity is going to survive you can take this at any level at the level of societies at the level of companies at the level of uh you know meetings it's all about uh you know individuals coming together and doing great things yeah i think constant change um just seeing is something we it, it, it's it's difficult i'm not sure how comfortable we can get with it but i think we need to learn to live with it uh, and i think there's also uh, to john's earlier point about how things change around covid i think there's also we're in the process of a different psychological contract between the employee and the employer because this sort of i mean you we were all, all used to complain about work life balance but at least you used to go home and now we've got the point right where we really need to work out what work life balance means and what the expectation is from one another and i think um you know that is going to be interesting as it develops over the last next uh, few months and then i think somebody mentioned it earlier resilience is going to be everything uh i think if we're going to learn to live in this new world then resilience is going to be as important as anything just in i think constant change is inevitable and the pace the velocity of change is only ever going to increase productivity progression is fundamentally based upon it but i do think we need to be thoughtful about the capacity of individuals and large organizations to digest the magnitude of change that covid subjected them to and you know if you look at the mental health statistics for example at the moment in, in many societies around the world there are some worrying trends so i think you know as a leader a leader that is very focused on the well-being um 
of his colleagues, as the entire leadership team is at the company, you know, we spend a lot of time worrying about that balance between velocity of change, bringing the organisation with us and mental health. Finally, John, give us a from the top perspective. What are the attributes required to successfully lead transformation? I think I've already touched on these, actually. It, it, it has to start with a robust plan, but one that has sufficient flexibility in it to accommodate the things you might find or the unexpected surprises as you're executing on that transformation. A deep sense of urgency and determination. And with that, what I call modest confidence uh, and emphasize the modest word in that confidence. We've talked about resilience, but perhaps most importantly, uh, authenticity to leadership that results in you winning hearts and minds. If you do not win hearts and minds on challenging transformations, you make those transformations just incrementally far more difficult to execute upon. So those, those are the principles by which I have always approached transformations and found to be uh, an effective way of achieving them. And you mentioned resilience earlier. How much of your resilience comes from that small Welsh town upbringing? Well, I think, I think it comes from the dairy farm between my, behind my parents' house where I spent most of my childhood. I think if you grow up on a farm, uh, you, you very quickly develop a work ethic uh, that serves you well for the rest of your days, I think. And uh, that is certainly the case uh, here. That, that actually explains the long hours, John. <laughs> As a funny story, actually. When I, uh, I was a bit of a late developer and uh, I scraped into tertiary education. And when I did, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go to agricultural college or geology. Let's just say I'm very glad I did geology. <laughs> John, it's great talking with you. Thanks very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Bye now. Well, that's it for this edition. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation and do subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss an episode. We'll be back soon with another special business guest. Until then, from me, Justine Green, Vivek, Ishmael and John, it's goodbye. The Incremental to Exponential podcast. Back soon.